So let's start with this. How do we define missions? Big question. I'm going to give you a second to think about it. But let's see if collectively we can come up with a definition of what is missions. Intro to missions class. What are we talking about? Now, I've had time to prepare, and I've got a succinct little answer, but I'm going to be the last one to share. Not because I mind the final definitive answer, but I want to hear from you guys. Let's, let's put this together. This will help with perspectives and ways we're thinking about this and kind of build on, on one another. What is missions? Okay, tell me. What are the elements that are in it? Okay. Okay. So, evangelism, church planning, some form of going. I think that that's, that's helpful. Okay. Good. Some sending involved. Could be right in your own neighborhood. Good, good. Let's keep going. Keep adding to that. Any other thoughts? What is missions? Oh, you, you, you wrote something out. Let's go. What do you get? Say it one more time. Read it again. like those elements. Good. Good, good. All right, so you've uh, got a, a handout, and hopefully this will help you guys um, take notes and, and follow along, but also participate in time together. And here's a definition I would give for us to work through uh, today. Evangelism, missions is evangelism. So starting with that, which is Evangelism is the proclamation of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that compels um, people to trust in Jesus as their only Lord and Savior. So that's evangelism. Evangelism that takes the gospel across ethnic, linguistic, and geographic boundaries, sees disciples made, and then gathered into churches. So evangelism that takes the gospel across ethnic, linguistic, and geographic boundaries, sees disciples made, and then gathered into churches. So kind of some of the elements 
Kellen, you brought up, we've got, we're sharing the gospel, right? So we might do uh, helpful, good things along the way as part of opportunities to serve others and to engage them, but particularly with the gospel. So we're, we're going with the heart to evangelize, to take the gospel. We might be doing it in our own neighborhood, but we're particularly thinking, how are we crossing into a new boundaries over linguistic, over uh, geographic, over ethnic um, boundaries. That's going to require us to think well about the gospel in our culture and how to communicate it well within theirs and within their own language and those kind of things. So we are distinguishing missions from evangelism that you might do with a coworker that speaks, that in, in every way speaks your language and I mean that culturally, I mean that linguistically, I mean that um, locally. But then it's not just evangelism. We're not just throwing it out to see what sticks and leaving before uh, we see the results of that. But to see disciples made. So we're continuing uh, in evangelism as, as God converts people and we grow them as disciples of Christ. And then we gather those disciples into churches, gathered into churches. All right. So where do we begin in a class on missions? Well, you turn over on the back of your handout, you can see where we're going to go. Um, and we, we could start with a study on all the demographics of the world and talk about the, the neediness and the lostness of the world and, and how desperately... Uh, folks need the gospel, that's an option. We could uh, start with kind of a, a history uh, of, of missions. Start in Acts, work our way through church history, pick up with modern missions movements, kind of get us to today's uh, point in time. We could, uh, we could talk about uh, like techniques in evangelism or church planting. We could begin with uh, just... The, de- the myriad of debates that, are, that surround this topic on um, the purpose of missions and short-term and long-term and all those kinds of things. And those are all good things, and at some point we will probably discuss all of those things. Actually, some of those we'll spend a whole week uh, just uh, mining those, those questions that are out there. Those are all worthy topics, but but I, I don't think that they're the proper starting place for a truly biblical view of missions. And, and why I think that is because I think what, what happens is we start in one of those places, we end up putting the cart before the horse. We end up uh, kind of uh, getting things jackknifed in some ways because we're so, we're so interested in how the cart is built and the ways that it works and how it, and, and how it looks that we're not good at the thing that's going to drive it. We're not good horsemen in that sense. And so um, there are lots of ways that um, we have taken misguided approaches to evangelism. But to understand missions and our proper place in it, I think we should start at the fountainhead, at the source, at the ground of it all, in the excellent nature of God. So we're going to start with, uh, with God. That's going to be what fuels uh, that's the fuel that powers God's passion for, for missions. And it should be the fuel that, that uh, powers our passion for missions is the glory of God.
the glory of God. Andy Johnson in his book on missions, which you can find on our stall, and it's one of the resources we recommend um, on the back of um, your handout. He says, God's word gives us everything we need to obey him and bring him glory. Speaking of God. That includes everything we need in order to obey his great commission to make disciples among all nations. That doesn't mean his word explicitly addresses every question we might invent. And one of the things we see clearly in scripture is that a concern for missions is a concern for all Christians. Because it's a concern of every local church together. So in here I think what we see is is the fuel and the engine of missions. We're going to kind of stick with that metaphor. Abandon old-fashioned old cart and horse imagery, and let's move on to the modern age, and let's talk about fuel and rockets. Okay? So what, what is the fuel? Well, I think the fuel is God's glory. God's glory, proclaimed, seen, embraced, loved to the ends of the earth to the ends of the earth, and to the end of time, temporal, and throughout eternity. It's God's glory. It's God's glory. And the engine, spoiler alert, will be the local church. And that's where we'll, we'll go in today's conversation, looking at the, the fuel and the engine of missions. So uh, in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, um, we start with, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that, just that four-word phrase uh, sets the tone for much of the rest of the purpose and the exposition of the Bible. It's that in the beginning, God did this. God. And so in the same way, that's where we're going to start with a, mission, with a class on missions. In the beginning of our class on missions... God. Let's, let's hone in on God. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, we glorify God when we are God admirers. When we, um, when what we see in him and what we desire to do is admire him. We see in him all the goodness and uh, what is admirable in the character and in the work of God. Tom Wells picks up on this in his book, a vision for missions. He says, men must know God. That's the only thing we must do. And this can mean nothing less than that God is eminently worthy to be known in all the length and breadth and height and depth of his character. The Christian is a God explorer. Not a great picture of what we're called to be doing with every, every stitch of who we are. We are to be God explorers. The Christian vision is the vision of God. And the missionary vision is the vision of God also. It's not something different from the Christian vision. And that's super important. So I want to read it again. The Christian vision is the vision of God. The missionary vision is the vision of God also. It's not something different from the Christian vision. I think that all too often happens in our individual lives and kind of as a church uh, culture, whether here at UBC or just across evangelicalism, it's really easy for us to have this idea that what it means to pursue God 
uh, what, it, what it looks like for us to, to be growing in faithfulness and Christ-likeness is separate from what it looks like for us to see um, evangelism done to the ends of the earth across all those boundaries we talked about so that disciples are made and gathered into churches. Going back to this quote from Tom Wells, it says, it's the same vision being shared rather than merely, in, rather than merely enjoyed. It's the same vision being shared with men who have no natural taste for it in the hope that God will create that taste so that they will become God admirers, sharing the vision of God that is the work of missions. So, let's talk about the greatness of God. You don't, you don't need, uh, yeah, you don't need a systematic theology class, although we have those here. Um, we don't need, uh, we don't need uh, degrees upon degrees. Um, the, with the measure faithful to what God has revealed to us, we are going to marvel at His greatness. So whether that is just in knowing those four lines, in the beginning, God, and we realize that means that God was before the beginning, and we marvel at that. In the beginning, God created, and we marvel at, at all that he created and, and how he's made us to create and how we, we marvel at his greatness. So understanding the greatness of God is, ground, is the ground to understanding a Christian motivation for missions. So your first little fill in the blank there is the greatness of God is the grounds for missions. It's the ground for missions. Charles Misner, who's a scientist um, in general relative theory, which I don't know what that is. Well, I have a basic idea, but I a basic, very, very basic idea. He expressed Einstein's skepticism over the church with words that I think should awaken us to the shallowness of our view and worship of the greatness of God. Talking about Einstein, he says, the design of the universe is very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that's why Einstein had so little use for organized religion, although he strikes me as a basically very religious man. He must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined. And they were, uh, they were just not talking about the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt that religions he'd run across did not have proper respect for the author of the universe. So here he's trying to describe the experience. This is an Einstein speaking. This is someone trying to understand why he was skeptical of things. But he's saying, man, when, when someone who became such an in-depth explorer of creation looked at people who were, who were meant to be God explorers, the author of that creation, and described something far less interesting, far less great than what just mere explorers of creation had discovered, it, it, it created this uh, division. And I think we do that in our own lives in so many ways. So let's look at Isaiah 40. Uh, 25 and 26. Start someone who could read that for us. And Isaiah 40 is 
a fantastic read on the greatness of God. It, it's beautiful. And this just pulls out one little, little example of how God unveils his own greatness to us and, and, and shows how silly it is when we, when we lessen that greatness or, or try to compare it to any created thing. He always supersedes in, in marvelous ways. So here, he's specifically talking about, look, look at the starry host. Look at the stars of the sky. Look how they all come out. Look how no, not one of them is missing. Look at his creating power and his sustaining ability. It's just incredible. Uh, about 15 or 20 years ago, the Hubble Space Telescope uh, which at the time was the most incredible uh, telescope ever created, sent up into space. It's recently been superseded by the James Webb um, uh, telescope. They, uh, they ran this pretty crazy experiment, which seemed absolutely ridiculous at the time, and a complete waste of the most incredible, most expensive telescope that had ever been invented. And the guy who was in charge of the telescope said, there's this black spot in space. Every time we've ever looked at it with anything we've ever looked at, it's just dark. No one thinks there's anything there. What I want to do is I want to take the Hubble Space Telescope and I want to point it at that spot. And then I want to leave it pointed there for a hundred hours. Just take every other experiment off the books, every other picture that needed to be taken, every other thing that they were tracking with that telescope, and let's just leave it there for a hundred hours. Point it at nothing for a hundred hours. Everyone thought he was crazy, but he was in charge, so he did it. And the end result of that was that we found that there were five times as many galaxies in the universe than we had thought to that point. Just in that tiny black dot, we found five times more galaxies, not stars, galaxies that we had never been able to see before. And they've since repeated that experiment two other times, and supposedly James Webb is going to make that even more ridiculous. And it's knowledge like that that should cause us to stand in complete awe of the greatness of God, and then to realize that there are people all over the world who do not know of his greatness, who do not know, cannot explain who put those stars in the sky and why they're there. So, why is a clear understanding of God's greatness central to the missionary effort? Why do you guys think we should start with the greatness of God? Why is it essential to the missionary effort? Not peripheral, not a sidebar, but central. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, if if we don't recognize the greatness of God, then we become the greatest. 
and we become central. Ooh, that's good. That's good, brother. Why else? Why else must the greatness of God be central to missions? How how does how does our God make the message different? Yeah, that's beautiful. And because we are recording this, there will be times where I will make a probably shoddy attempt to repeat what you said, just so that when you're listening back to it later, you'll get the input from the wisdom from the room. And so, yeah, it makes it so different because, you know, say it one more time. You know, we just, we have the one true God. We have the one true God. Yeah, amen. Amen. Yeah, so understanding God's glory is central to the gospel because if otherwise we don't understand the gap between us and them. We, be, we become central to it. We don't see he's the one true God. And so when we can lower him and elevate us, then the gap between us and him isn't that big. And what's so incredible about starting with the greatness of God is we just really easily recognize the gap between us and him is infinite. And... So then we need an infinite solution to that gap, and that's Christ. And, and then what that produces in us is, is infinite. It's life eternal. It's uh, fruit that comes from the, from the very spirit of God uh, in our lives. So those are central things to the gospel. Right? And we said from the beginning that missions is evangelism that crosses boundaries to make disciples and gather them in churches. And so if we don't even get evangelism, right, the centrality to the gospel, then everything else that we're trying to do will be done in our own strength and not out of the greatness and the power and the glory of God. So throughout history, view, a view of God's greatness and the commitment that God, um, and the commitment that God has revealed to make his name great among the nations has been a driving force motivating missionaries and helping them to persevere. So God is good, and he has a good plan to gather people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, those very people for whom Christ died. So God is unquestionably sovereign, and he is good. He is good. And so that, that forms the backbone of missions. The goodness and the sovereignty of God is the backbone of missions. It's what, it's what uh, kind of keeping the, his hand at our back uh, stands us up straight, holds us forward, keeps us from falling back. Because we recognize 
that God is good and he is great. And that is a message we're sharing. He's also in control of all things. And we can trust him with the outcome of what he promises uh, to us. Here, another quote from William Carey, reflecting on his arrival in India in 1763. And I think this quote, I included it. Yep. When I left England, my hope of India's conversion was very strong. But amongst so many obstacles, it would die, unless upheld by God. Well, I have God, and his word is true. Though the superstitions of the heathen were a thousand times stronger than they are, and the example of the Europeans a thousand times worse, though I was deserted by all and persecuted by all, yet my faith, fixed on the sure word, would rise above all obstacles and overcome every trial. God's cause will triumph. Amen. Praise God. His plan to save will succeed because his arm is limitless in its power. Like William Carey, our deep appreciation of those marvelous truths provide the foundation, the ground, the backbone we need for both zeal and perseverance in missions. And so the primacy, what I want to look at next is that the primacy of God's glory is through missions. So why does missions exist? Why do Christians labor to spread the gospel to those who have not heard it? Well, missions exist because God is great and worthy to be known and loved for his infinite excellence. All right, so missions exist because there are people around the world who are not glorifying God for his greatness and his good and not loving him. So the greatness of God is the ground of missions and exalting worship is the goal of missions. The global praise of God's glory is the final goal of missions. John Piper's opening line in the book, Let the Nations Be Glad, um, and uh, there are few books I've ever read where the opening paragraph uh, is is worth the cost of admission. like, And that's true with Let the Nations Be Glad. Like, buy the whole book just for this opening paragraph because it was so paradigm-changing uh, for me in understanding why and how we do missions. But here's the basic premise. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Easy. Missions exists because worship doesn't. You can read the rest of the quote here in your handout. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their face before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It's a temporary necessity. But the worship of God abides forever. Isn't that beautiful? So, God is great. He is beyond description and beyond compare. And because of that, he is worthy of worship now and throughout eternity. And he will receive that worship now and throughout eternity. But there are those in our, our world right now who have not yet turned and trusted in Christ and who are not God explorers, who are not God worshipers, who are not God fearers, who have not been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And missions exist as a temporary necessity. I love that. 
as incredibly difficult as it is, as incredibly all-consuming as it is, it is merely a temporary necessity. Because ultimately, in eternity to the future, worship will still exist. And worship will exist among the, every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around his throne because missions existed in this time. Love, love, love this ideal. So, we should be zealous for God's glory because God is zealous for God's glory. God has um, called us to join him in his zeal. So whether that's in how often we see his glory proclaimed uh, throughout his scriptures or it's his call to, uh, um, for us to go and to tell people, like for instance, in the, there's a parable in, uh, in Luke 14 of a banquet where the, the master has prepared a banquet and he sends, he compels his, his servants to go out and invite people in. And even as people uh, decline the invitation, he continues to sow more broadly and more broadly and more broadly to bring others into the banquet. And that, that parable out of Luke 14 is a picture that, of what God the Father wants um, from us, that many would come in, and so he sends out his servants to compel them to come in so that his house will be full. God wa- does not want, um, excuse me, God does want to reach the lost with the news of the kingdom. And that's certainly true at one level, but it's not the deepest explanation of God's motivations. If missions is only about that God wants fellowship, that God wants to have the biggest party in town, The picture of the banquet is not of a lonely master who just needs people to come in and and be around him. Then if we we take that view, we we circle back to a man-centered view of God, that that God needs, needs us. We become the point. But that's not what we see in Scripture. So let's let's circle back up to the to the verses that we listed earlier under under B1. I'm just going to have a couple people volunteer to read them. Uh, can someone read Psalm 67, 3, and 4? Just Who's got it? Got it. Who, some, yeah, right, great. Okay. And then you'll be in the same book. So Psalm 96, verse 3. Desi, I think you were willing to read. Grab that one. And then 97, 1. Zach, you want to get that one? All right. Listen to the refrain that comes when we read these verses together. Amen. Amen. 96, 3. Good. And Zach? What are some themes, some notes uh, that you hear picked up as we read all three of those together? And there are countless others that we could read along the same lines. But what are some things that you hear coming up in those verses? Mm. 
yeah, the people who glorify him are filled with joy. It's mutual, right? It's not, it's not just merely toward God. That's good. What else? What else did you hear in those verses? God. Yeah, we think of the New Testament as the place where we see the Gentiles brought in, but we just read three songs of God's people from the Old Testament that all um, point to God's glory being declared to the ends of the earth, that all the peoples of the earth will, will worship him. The nations surely will be made glad. That's a, a promise that we can we can use as a motivating factor for us. Well, our passion to trumpet God's greatness is rooted in his own passion for his own glory. It's rooted in that. So our, our desire to do that stems from his actions, his passion. For his own glory. Would someone read for us Isaiah 48, 9 through 11? Go for it, Jeff. So God is passionate to see that his glory is not stolen. It's not given to another. It's not borrowed by a creature. Instead, it's his. And because he is the greatest good and he is the greatest glory, it is right and holy and perfect for him to jealously guard that glory and that passion. But Uh, And John Piper says it well when he says, the ultimate foundation of our passion to see God glorified is his own passion to be glorified. God is central and supreme in his own affections. There are no rivals for the supremacy of God's glory in his own heart. God is not an idolater. Well said, Johnny Pipes. God is not an idolater. He worships no creature. He does not disobey the first and great commandment. With all his heart and soul and strength and mind, 
God delights in the glory of his manifold perfection. The most passionate heart for God in all the universe is God's heart. Good word. And yet it's God's glory as seen in God's humility. So not just that he is pompous or arrogant or um, that he, he's none of those things, but instead that he is humble. And we see this particularly in places like Philippians 2, where we see the incredible humility of God the Son to condescend, to leave heaven and to walk among us, to be our sacrificial lamb and to adopt us, that God doesn't just uh, hoard all that glory for himself and all that goodness for himself, but he graciously, humbly offers it to us. And we walk in that. We walk in that. Um, God himself is the most excellent and glorious being in the universe. For God to be truthful, he must exalt his own glory above all else. And the enjoyment of him is the best and kindest gift he can bestow on his creatures. So, praise God that he bestows on us the good gift of access to his great glory. And we see that glory um, in his grace most, most supremely. And there are lots of places we could go to look at it. And I've listed some there for you to understand that there is a deep connection between God's passion for his grace and missions. The gospel message tells of the surprising way in which God has chosen to be glorified. He has aligned himself with us in his desire to receive the glory that he deserves. He could have decided to judge us to eternal condemnation for his glory, but instead he's decided to glorify himself also through showing mercy to sinners. So, you can look at, for instance, Ephesians chapter 1. And there's much to look at in here when we realize that, that God has predestined us for adoption. He has caused us to hope in Christ. He has given us an inheritance. He has secured that inheritance. And he did all of this in order that he would be glorified. That, that refrain comes up often in that passage. I wish we had time just to to dig in and and work through Ephesians chapter 1 together today. But the gospel and missions cannot be and must not be separated from God's desire to glorify himself. Let's look at, um, let's look at, finally, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. Can I have someone read that for us? Beautiful. So that that manifold wisdom, right? Talking about one of the aspects of the uh, incredible glory and greatness of God. And how is that known? Well, it's known through the church, through the gathering of God's people, that he has set aside people uh, for himself, redeemed them, adopted them, sanctified them, and pulls them together. And so we'll, we'll spend a lot of time in this class talking about how the engine of making his glory known is the church. 
it's the church. So the fuel is God's glory, and the, and that fuel does not run dry. So like William Carey talking about, had everything else been even worse than it was, um, it's not going to run dry. Those hard days, uh, whether on the other side of the planet from where you grew up, learning a language, learning a new culture, persecuted for your faith, or uh, here at work, wherever the uh, sharing the gospel with family and friends and those nearest to you. When it's done in our own strength, when it's done for our own, uh, our own um, affirmation, our own whatever, it will, it will pass away. It will fall away. But when the, when the fuel is God's glory, that's, a, that's a, uh, a tank that never runs dry. And then when we attach that tank to the right kind of engine, when we attach it to the church, and not merely me as an individual, but recognizing my role in community here before you're sent, uh, as a sending church, and your role as a sender, in your role as a goer, in your role in how to make disciples and how to gather them together and what that looks like for the long term so that churches are, are established and are, are firm and are doing the same things to the ends of the earth and the glory of God, then we've got a, a winning combination here of the right fuel and the right engine. So I want us to, to close our time by thinking about um, one of my favorite missionaries, um, Lottie Moon, Charlotte Diggs Lottie Moon. She lived from 1840 to 1912. What do you guys know about Lottie Moon? Anyone know? Any, ever heard that name before? Those of you who have heard that name before, what do you know about Miss Lottie? We have a Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Yes, excellent. What else? She was very short. Yep, yep. Most folks think that she may have reached four foot three, I believe. A tiny little woman. All right. So now I'm not sure what the average height was in the 19th century, um, but four foot three I think has always been on the shorter side of adults. So, yep. What else? She's died of starvation. Yeah. So, uh, so Lottie grew up in, uh, in Virginia, in the South, before the Civil War, um, in, uh, uh, to, uh, to wealthy parents. Because with that came opportunities for education. She, she completed her master's in multiple languages um, from a college connected with the University of Virginia. Um, and she started a, a, a boarding school for girls in Virginia and uh, came to Christ when she was 18 in college. Um, praise God for college ministry. And, uh, and then when, um, when she was 33, she left to go overseas uh, to China. She was appointed by what was then called the Foreign Mission Board. She was the 23rd missionary, something like that from the Foreign Mission Board, which is now the International Mission Board, which is, um, which is the, one of the mission boards that we work with at Southern Baptist, and which is why the Southern Baptist uh, mission offering is called Lottie Moon. So uh, she went 
to China, and in China, she diligently learned the language, worked hard to learn the language, and to adapt into the culture, was in a major port city. And there, she tried uh, to start another boarding school for, for girls in the hopes that in sharing the gospel with girls from wealthy uh, families, that that would give her influence into those wealthy families. And she did things like uh, fought against foot binding and uh, taught the Bible uh, faithfully. And as she, uh, after about uh, eight or ten years of that particular work, continued to just see that the opportunities uh, in the city and with those were were ripe, but in comparison to the untapped, unreached people within the interior and outside the cities, her heart just hurt to go to the women and children in the villages uh, throughout rural China. And so she did what no one else had ever done, had had not considered wise or helpful, and she moved hours and hours uh, into the interior of China all by herself as a single woman and continued uh, to live among the people and to preach the gospel to them. She came back and forth uh, just a few times on furlough. So in uh, nearly 40 years, 39 years on the field, she maybe spent two or three total years uh, back stateside, um, but was incredibly formative, not only in the way missions was done in China, um, leading out in, um, in evangelism and in, uh, in the forming of missionaries, but was incredibly influ- uh, influential in how back in the United States, missions was, uh, missionaries were raised up and supported. And so she helped to form what was called the Women's Missionary Union, the WMU. It's still in existence today. It started in the 1880s. Um, a collection of women across mostly Southern Baptist life who are dedicated to seeing the gospel uh, taken to the ends of the earth. She helped uh, to form that. And, uh, and then they started an annual Christmas offering um, to support missions. And the very first one raised a little over $3,000 in 1888, uh, which was a tremendous sum uh, in, um, in the 1900s, and was enough to send three new uh, single women to come to the field so that Lottie could take her first furlough. Um, since the time that she had take, she had had to take a sister that had served on the field with her back home because of her failing health. But that was, she had stretched out for 14 years, um, staying on the field until replacements could be sent. Um, and then she, if you read her letters, she just hammers on the church for not, for not sending and not supporting well. Um, I, I love this quote. I included it for you guys. But there are some other ones that she just... She is a sharp woman. We are now a very, very few feeble workers, scattering the grain, broadcast according as time and strength permit. God will give the harvest. Praise God. Doubt it not, but the laborers are so few. Where we have four, we should not have less than 100. And are these wild words? They would not seem so were the church of God awake to her high privileges and her weighty responsibilities. Praise God. So she, um, she made it through multiple wars in China. At one point, she, there's just incredible stories about her, and we don't have time to go into all of them, but at one point, she helped to negotiate a ceasefire between two 
warring factions so that she could get through enemy lines to care for soldiers on both sides and to run a hospital that had been abandoned um, because, uh, because other Westerners thought it was too unsafe. And then when the Westerners finally came back when the battle was over, they found her. She'd been running the hospital for two weeks. Um, and then she just went back to doing what she normally did. Um, but uh, in, uh, in the 19-teens, an incredible famine uh, came to her region. And um, she so, I'm going to get emotional, desperately wanted to see the gospel continue to go out and to care for those under her care that she stopped eating herself to make sure that everyone else had the food that she had access to. She gave away her own salary um, that was coming in from the mission board that was there to pay for her food so she could continue to support. And they actually, in her region, in the year that she died, they saw the number of people uh, as members of Baptist churches in that region double, um, even in the midst of famine. But when they finally called in a doctor to check on her, they realized that she had starved herself to death. And that they put her on a slow boat. Golly, I don't know why I'm getting emotional. Like, this is like a friend. And, um, yeah, and uh, to take her home in hopes that getting her back to the States, they could restore her health. And she died on the trip back home. She died on Christmas Eve. Um, and um, in 1912, she was 50 pounds. 50 pounds. Um, yeah. And there is lots of work still to be done in her, in her um, following in her footsteps. And um, yeah, uh, our little our little Charlotte is named after Lottie. And um, we have a quote that Lottie said about how much she loved God's word. It's written. Golly, I'm going to try to push through this, guys. Yeah, it's written in the front of Charlotte's Bible to remind her that. Um, of the high privileges and weighty responsibilities we have. Love that line. So, yes, there's much work still to be done, and I want us to take time to close out in groups of three or four to pray for China. In particular, we picked Lottie today because I wanted us to pray for China, and I want us to pray for China because with the Olympics going on, it's right in front of us. And, um, and there's much, much to pray for China. I asked uh, Chris Xiao, who's a member here and who served as a missionary in China um, and has a deep heart for them, for, some, for some, um, some ways we can pray together for China. He says, wisdom and perseverance for pastors, so those who are currently serving and leading churches uh, in China, that they are spread so, so thin, he says. Due to government persecution and over the and the over the top COVID restrictions, most house churches have been kept from meeting as a congregation for a long time now. So China requires all their adults to carry a smartphone that tracks where they are for COVID, um, and so that it can tell w- whether you were in the same room with someone else who has who has COVID, um, and that conveniently is really helpful to find underground churches when uh, they're required to keep a tracking and it tracks when all of them got together in the same place at the same time. Pastors need wisdom on how to shepherd the congregation during this time and on how to raise up other leaders and elders to shepherd the church. Most, Secondly, most estimates are that there are just as many Christians in China as there are in America, if not more. 
Pray that God would raise up qualified Chinese church planters to take the gospel to other ethnic groups who have no access to the gospel with, uh, within their borders and beyond. So pray that they would go, go out. And then specifically pray for the ministry of Wayne Chen and Radius Asia as they seek to establish a new campus that will specifically train Chinese mainland church planters, that God would give them favor, wisdom, resources, open doors, and effectiveness. So three things to pray for. One, pray for planters, uh, for pastors. Two, pray for missionaries uh, to be sent out. And three, here's a specific missionary and um, ministry to pray for, for Wayne Chen and Radius Asia that trains um, that trains folks how to take the gospel into a people group where maybe their language isn't written, there's no Bible in their language, there's no uh, known people groups. And so I want to give you guys a, quick, uh, a couple resources. If you guys would go ahead and get into your groups of three, be helpful. And I'm just going to give you a couple things for you to have for this week. Um, as you continue in your own ways that you're praying for China. So here are some maps that I pulled from Operation World. Operation World is a, is a really helpful resource. They have books that, um, uh, that, yeah, that are incredibly detailed ways to know the culture and to pray for folks there. And then the, their website is kept up to date. This map is... Uh, is color-coded by percentage of, uh, of those who are evangelical. Um, and so you can kind of see China not as a monolith, but to recognize the diversity of it. And then this will also help with that. This is just some statistics that um, Operation World puts together where you can see 1.4 billion people with 296 languages. Um, hundreds of people groups, 544, um, 443 of them considered least reached, 33% unevangelized. So, um, yeah. So if you would, just take a few minutes uh, in your groups, pray for, um, pray for China, pray for the three things that we, we've given you. I'm going to pray for us to start, and then how we'll close out is just that when you're done praying, you can slip out and head down to the main service, okay? So take as long as y'all need to pray in your groups. Lord Jesus, we are um, floored by the goodness and the greatness of you, our God. And we pray that we would be fueled by that to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're thankful for the stories of missionaries like Lottie Moon, Lord, we pray that we wouldn't idolize them, but that they would point us towards their great God. And we pray now for China. Lord, we pray that you would continue to raise up laborers. As Lottie Moon prayed for 150 years ago, we join in that prayer now, that you would raise up laborers. We know that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Send laborers into that harvest field. We pray these things in Jesus' name.